Good morning, and uh, at this time we'll dismiss the kids. They can head on down to Reno Kids. See you later, kids. We love you. Well, we are continuing along in our series through Matthew, and this morning we find ourselves at the beginning of Matthew 16. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning or don't have one in your house, before you leave this place, maybe even now, head to the back, grab one, keep it. We want you to have a copy of God's Word um, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and we ask that by your spirit you would work now in our hearts. Open our eyes, our minds, our hearts that we might see Jesus clearly. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think today is November 14th, so we're mid-November. And I'm sure for a lot of us that creates some uh, eager expectation and excitement for what's coming in the weeks ahead. Right? I mean, it's mid-November. Yeah, yeah, Thanksgiving, Christmas, that's not what I'm talking about. Snow, right? It's, it's coming. I think I got an alert on my phone about wet snow coming tonight. But I get a lot of you reject God's good gift of snow. That's, that's on you. That's not on me. Right? But let's put this in perspective. 
we have to deal with snow. And, and yes, in May and June, that's obnoxious, right? But people in Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Iowa, they deal with tornadoes, right? We, we get snow, they get tornadoes. I'm taking that trade every time, yeah. right? <laughs> tornadoes, I'm terrified of, of the thought of a tornado. They're destructive, they're, they're deadly, and, and at certain times they're even deadlier. There's been this study over the past 150 years of tornadoes, and, and tornadoes that occur at night are two and a half times deadlier in their effect. Now, the reason for that might be kind of obvious. Most people are sleeping at night, right? They're not aware that a storm has been brewing, that it's on them. And then maybe by the time they realize uh, um, it sounds like a freight train outside, um, they've got nowhere to go, right? And they are stuck. But now we have this uh, amazing technology that we can identify when, when storms are likely. And not only that, now we have the ability, the technology, to actually warn people that a storm is coming. They don't have to be listening to their radio all night. Now they have a smartphone sitting by their bed, and all of a sudden there is an obnoxious buzzing and, and beeping that goes off, alerting them to the fact that there is a tornado in their area. And this has, they, the, the stories, they're stories, but it saved massive amounts of lives. Our ability to detect a storm and then give a warning about said storm is crucial to saving lives. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Matthew 16, 1 through 12, these verses we're looking at are a blaring, um, jarring emergency alert for our lives. This this passage is one of those loud, obnoxious alerts on our phones. Like you're trying to turn it off, but you can't. It's one of those alerts because there are dangers. Dangers in our own hearts and dangers in the church and dangers in the world around, of, around us. And let's be clear. Some of us are sleeping. We're, we're dozing off. We're not, we're not fully aware of what's coming. And perhaps some of us this morning need to be awakened to the, to the obstinance in our own hearts. Some of us maybe need to be alerted to the destructive ideas that are swirling around us in the church and in the world. They, they have a veneer of spirituality. They, they often come with scriptures quoted or cited right alongside of them. But they'll destroy if they take hold. And so uh, Matthew 16, 1 through 12 addresses two types of people. And I think almost all of you fit in one of these two types of people. It addresses doubters. And it addresses disciples. It addresses those who are cynics of Jesus. And it addresses those who are followers of Jesus. There's a gracious warning for each of us in this text this morning. So let's look at it. Our, our text begins with two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Um, and they're asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. Now, this seems harmless enough, right? Um, hey, Jesus, we just want some, some verification. Could you help us out? Like, just, just pull the ID out of your pocket, Jesus. Show us. Right? Uh, just, just give us some credentials, Jesus, so we know it's you and you are who you say you are. But we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that their asking for a sign was a genuine seeking after truth. These weren't genuine seekers. Matthew highlights that they were requesting a sign. They did so, according to verse 1, to test him. And to test him, they asked for a sign. So their posture wasn't, wasn't an inquisitive one. It was a hostile, uh, hostile posture. One that didn't want to discern truth, but wanted to demean the one from whom they sought the sign. As if to say, yeah, 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 Jesus, you've done lots of amazing things. We get it. Now do some more. Right? Jump. Jump some more. Jump higher. Right? Now remember, up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, what has Jesus done? Well, he's cast out demons. He's raised a little girl from the dead. He's raised a paralytic off their mat. He's cleansed a leper. He's healed a man with a limp and withered hand. He's fed 5,000 people from five loaves, and he's fed 4,000 people from seven loaves. This wasn't the pursuit of truth. They've seen who Jesus is. They've seen his power. They've seen his authority. This wasn't the pursuit of the truth, but the insistence that, that he be Messiah, God's anointed deliverer, on their terms. This was a demand that Jesus fit their preconceived notions and desires. And Jesus rebukes them for this. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, there will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He's saying, you have the ability to observe the obvious. The obvious things in the sky. My, uh, I remember my grandfather used to say this to me. He lived by the shore in New Jersey, and he would always say, um, red at night, sailor's delight. Red in the morning, sailor's warning, right? Same, same thing Jesus is saying here. And, and he's saying, it's easy. You can just go ahead outside, look at the obvious signs, and boom, you've got it. You've you got it figured out. The problem was their, uh, their ability to observe obvious things like the color of the sky didn't transfer to a similar ability to observe the signs of the times. Now, don't get tripped up on that phrase, because that phrase has kind of been co-opted around a lot of crazy ideas, signs of the times. We tend to think of that like the guy has his end times chart that goes around the room, right? And he's, ch he's charting out all the things, the signs of the times. But that's obviously not what it means here, right? What Jesus is meaning by that phrase is a decisive moment in God's plan. And that is 
the arrival of the kingdom in the person of Jesus, they, they can't see it. It's as if they have blinders on. They can see the red in the sky, but they can't see the just as obvious revelation of God in the person of Jesus. They can't see it. They won't see it. They refuse to see it. And Jesus goes one step further in verse 4. He says, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus. This might sound like Jesus is saying, you know what, everybody? Uh, Let's go blind faith. Doesn't matter what the facts are, just blind faith. Believe in me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, believe in the absence of reason. Nor is he saying, uh, believe in the face of reason to the contrary. This this evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He's referring to those who keep seeking for signs in the midst of a sea of signs. It's like floating in the middle of the ocean and going, I wish we'd see some water. Nope, it's all around you. It's obvious. Only an evil and adulterous generation keeps seeking for signs in the midst of something so obvious. He's talking about a cynical skepticism that refuses to acknowledge Jesus in order to avoid the implications of God's revelation through him. These scribes and these Pharisees had clearly rejected clear signs about Jesus. The miracle of the feeding, what was that intended to convey? It was meant to bring their minds back to Exodus. When God had led the people out and he fed them, and God identified himself as their rescuer, as their redeemer, as their savior. It's obvious what Jesus is saying in the feedings. I'm your rescuer, I'm your redeemer, I'm your savior. The miracle of the healings in the previous chapter, the the one uh, Mike and Jeremy preached last week, demonstrated that the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus, right? The, the, The crippled were healed, the blind, the mute. And we're told that the Gentiles, in verse, if you look back at chapter 15, verse 30, uh, verse 31, the conclusion is, after they saw all these things, they glorified the God of Israel. They were looking at the signs. Oh, sky's red. It's obvious. They glorified the God of Israel because of the person of Jesus, sign of the time observed. The Gentiles got it. Jesus continues back in 16 verse 4 about this evil and adulterous generation, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, most of you know who Jesus is referring to here. The Old Testament prophet Jonah, right? God told uh, Jonah, hey, Jonah, you're going to go preach to the city of Nineveh. Yeah, 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 they're really bad, but you're going to go preach to them and tell them to repent. And Jonah's like, "Mm, no. And then Jonah gets on a boat, goes the opposite direction. What happens? He ends up in the water. He ends up being swallowed by a massive fish. And he spends three days in the watery tomb of that fish. Until 
the Lord is gracious, and the fish vomits him out. So what's the story of Jonah? What is Jesus referring to here? God's man dying, buried for three days, and rising again. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, saying, my death, my burial, my resurrection, my life, it's the only sign you're getting. It's what you got. But I think there's something more to the sign of Jonah here. There's a message to these cynics, to these skeptics. But think about it. Jonah's ministry was not to Israel. Why was it not to Israel? Because Israel refused to return to covenant faithfulness. So what did God do? He took his show on the road. He took his mercy elsewhere. You've rejected me. I'm going to reject you. It's no accident then that we read in verse 4. It's not a small detail. Look at verse 4 with me. So he left them and departed. Jesus left them and departed. Jesus is turning his back on judgment in the, for these cynics, on these cynics. There might be some of you here this morning who refuse to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What I want you to be clear about is that your refusal to acknowledge Jesus, to honor Jesus, to trust in Jesus, does not in any way negate His power. Your refusal to, to worship Him does not negate His authority. Does not, uh, does not stop his blessings. He will simply take his mercy elsewhere. This is what we've been seeing in the last chapter in Matthew 15, right? The Canaanite woman. She comes to Jesus and she receives his mercy and blessings. Jesus feeds the Gentiles. Those who reject Jesus will be rejected by him. He will take his blessings with him. Friend, if that's you today, this is a warning. Beware. If Jesus came from heaven, walked among us, was crucified, dead, buried, and raised again, on the third day, friend, you don't need any further signs today. You may have questions. That's okay. I've got questions. But the resurrection ends discussion. The resurrection is God's vindication of the life and teaching of Jesus. The resurrection is, is God's vindication of Jesus' message that, uh, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The resurrection is God's certification of Jesus' message that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, to free from slavery those who are bound. The resurrection is God's certification and validation of that message, that that is indeed what happened. And many of us want God to be God on our terms. It's kind of the inclination of our natural hearts. We want God to be God on our terms. We might say, though, though we wouldn't admit it explicitly, uh, God, I'll believe in you if you conform to my expectations. Here's what I think you should be doing in the world. Here's how I think you should be handling this situation. Will you be the kind of God I expect you to be? I want you to be? We might say, when the church conforms to my views and expectations of what the church should say and how the church should posture itself in the world, then I will join. Otherwise, I'm good sitting on the sidelines. Some of you, you, you've been hurt and you hold that against God. Why did he allow that to happen? Or we reason, God couldn't be God if he permitted that tragedy, chaos to happen. And the unspoken expectation of all that is God is God when he fits my mold. When he plays the part I have designed for him. Friends, Jesus will not be handled or managed by us. He's God on his terms, not ours. Right? He's not a little G.I. Joe action figure where we manipulate the arms and the legs and the head and he moves just where we want him. You can choose to reject him, but that doesn't change who he is. He is still God in flesh. And he will continue to show mercy, but elsewhere. Friends, beware of rejecting the obvious revelation of God in Christ Jesus, demanding he be God on your terms. Don't cut yourself off from God's mercy and blessing by demanding God be God on your terms. Today, if you hear his voice, if you see his beauty, if you recognize his death, burial, and resurrection. Do not harden your hearts and reject Jesus. But rejecting Jesus isn't the only danger that we see in this passage. There's another warning here. Let, let's look at that. So, Jesus moves on from these cynics and he departs and he ends up with, the, excuse me, with his disciples on the other side of the, the lake. And verse 5 informs us of the situation they find themselves in. It says they had forgotten, the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. So that's just kind of what happened. They are in a boat, they're on the lake, the disciples have forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus' next words are this. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's saying, Watch out. Be on the lookout. Be vigilant. Don't let your guard down. And what he wants them to be on his guard for, on their guard for, is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, 
for those of us who just go to Wegmans and get our bread, like me, and have no clue what leaven is, right? Leaven is that stuff in, that makes the dough rise, right? It's, it's yeast. You put just the, the slightest pinch in, and, and you mix it all in with the flour, the dough, and you don't even know it's in there, but it has this pervasive effect. It mixes in so that you can't even see it, but it, but it affects the whole thing. It changes it entirely. Now, when the disciples heard this warning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're connecting this to the fact that, hey, we forgot bread. We didn't pack the picnic basket. Right? Um, and so they think he's warning them about something with bread, with the leaven and Pharisees, because their picnic basket is empty. That's what we read in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. And so what they think is, Jesus is saying, hey, knuckleheads, you forgot bread, but here's what we're not going to do to remedy that problem. We're not going to buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees, because their kind of bread, it'll defile us. That's the train of thought the disciples are, are going through here. So he's saying, don't buy it from Tops, buy it from Wegmans, guys. Right? That's what, they, that's what they think he's saying. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He can't even believe they think that's what he's talking about. And he can't believe they think he's worried about a bread shortage. So verses 8 and 9. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? As if to say, fellas, are you really that spiritually dense? No, 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 guys. Can't, you can't be that spiritually blind. You, you, there's no way. You're talking about a bread shortage right now? And oddly enough, Jesus' rebuke of the disciples here, I think, should provide us some significant encouragement. Right? First, and I love this, um, Danielle brought this up in our, our MC this week. It, it provides encouragement about the trustworthiness of Scripture, this rebuke. We're reading Jesus' words and what is jesus doing he's belittling his disciples identifying them as those of little faith they're dull these aren't guys you want to listen to they don't get it but is this the mark of a story that would be made up that would be concocted by a church leader trying to gain a following if he was just fabricating a story making up stories about jesus to try to get people on his team to follow him. Hey, let me tell you about the one where I was really dumb, guys. Matthew would have no reason to invent an account in which he is completely embarrassed and the other disciples are completely discredited. Right? Undercutting any call to listen to them. The only explanation for the inclusion of of, of such a story into the gospel accounts is 
their authenticity, their, their historicity. But I think it also provides encouragement, not just on the trustworthiness of Scripture, but about the faithfulness of our Savior. Right? The disciples' response to Jesus, that should maybe supply some hope for maybe some of you who are like me. Slow. Dull. Little faith. Faithless. Jesus asked his disciples, the the one who had seen him still storms, the one who had witnessed him raise people from the dead, do you still not understand? And yet, when we read this gospel to the end, we'll see these same dense, faithless, fearful, unbelieving disciples embrace and worship the crucified and risen Lord. And He will certainly do the same for those who are dense and faithless and fearful right here at Renovation Church. Though we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Take heart, you of little faith. Right? But then notice in verses 9 and 10, Jesus asks His disciples to, uh, through these rhetorical questions, to rehearse His abundant provision of food that He provides on two occasions. Look at it with me. Verse 9. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Right? By these leading questions, Jesus is saying, guys, bread for 13 people? I think I can handle that, fellas. Remember I said like 9,000 men plus women and children. I think I can handle 13 guys in a boat. I got you covered, fellas. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about bread. His warning couldn't possibly have been about that. It was about something far more significant. It was about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the disciples, it finally dawns on them. But come on, guys, how long did it take? Was their teaching their belief system, their thought structure. After feeding the 4,000, the Pharisees demand that Jesus be Lord on their terms. That Jesus be Messiah on their terms. Show us the sign, Jesus. Jump higher, Jesus. That Jesus be the anointed deliverer on their terms. Jesus is saying, watch out for those teachings. Watch out for those who want to mold me into something different than I've shown you. See, we can be tempted to to obscure Jesus by forcing him into categories of thought that are so prominent all around us. We can tame and manipulate Jesus by by taking what we hear in the church and the world around us 
and just kind of putting that like a backpack on Jesus. That's who you are, Jesus. So Jesus says, beware of embracing corrupt views about him and about the Christian life that can so subtly infect our thoughts. Remember, this is leaven. You don't see it. It's not the main thing in the mix, but it's there, and it changes everything. It's leaven. It's not a complete rejection of Jesus. You say, I don't reject Jesus. I, I really respect Jesus. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, 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 but watch out for the leaven. Because in mixing in those destructive foreign elements, we've changed the truth about Jesus. We must stay alert to the distortions about Jesus' teaching and work. We must remain vigilant against misrepresentations of Jesus and false teaching. Because it's pervasive. It's all around us. Uh, I think probably most of you have heard about a guy by the name of Joseph Goebbels. He was one of Adolf Hitler's um, right-hand men. And this, uh, this dude, he was the minister of propaganda. He uh, lived by the truth that if you heard a lie often enough, you would begin to believe it. And he based entire Nazi campaign on that. So he forced the production of really cheap radios all throughout Germany and that part of the world so that everybody could listen to Hitler speak every time he spoke. And he mandated that in every coffee shop and in every cafe, when Hitler spoke, it was to be uh, turned on in the cafe. It was piped into the streets. He even went so far as they began making films that would dehumanize and devalue Jews. And guess what? It worked. Because that's all the Germans heard. It just wore them down. It's all they heard. It was the air they breathed. It was the water they swam, swam in. And the spiritual propaganda around us is likewise endless. Think about it. There's the... Um, there's the social and po political reformer Jesus that we hear on, on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, right? He's the Jesus who's going to whisk us back to a, a more civilized, uh, greater America or whisk us forward into some social utopia, right? And they back it up with this verse or that verse. But, but the Jesus that God revealed is, is not a sanctified Karl Marx or sanctified Ronald Reagan. No, no. Of course, this Jesus that the world presents to us provides just enough scripture to prop him up as our political and our social hope. But that Jesus doesn't call us to take up our cross and follow him. See how subtle that is. Of course, there's there's the life coach, Jesus, right? He's going to fix your marriage. He's going to help you get your finances in order. You might even be able to, to build generational wealth, right? Ensure your kids make it into RIT. But in the end, that Jesus is just a therapist with no ability to save you from your sin and the wrath of God. 
Real Jesus wasn't about leading us to our best life now, but to himself. There's legalist Jesus, and, and that Jesus is all about external forms, doing all the right things. Yeah, I mean, he might be a little bit concerned about our hearts and affections, but he's really concerned with what we don't do and, and what we do. As long as we're ticking off those evangelical, those boxes on the evangelical checklist, right? Then we're good. Then legalist Jesus accepts us and is happy with us. And then there's, there's abundant Jesus. Right, you've seen the, um, I think it was usually around this time when she used to have a show, Oprah, she would have her favorites show, right? And everybody in the audience uh, would get these amazing over-the-top gifts. And you've seen it like, you get one, you get one, you get one, right? <laughs> but friends, sometimes we think of Jesus that way. You get one, you get one, you get one. All the blessings. All the wonderful things in life. None of the hardship. None of the pain. We need to stay alert to distortions of Jesus, to, to false teaching that cannot satisfy. Because we are constantly surrounded and bombarded by this propaganda, by this messaging. And the, our failure to drink deeply from the scripture, we will embrace this. So we'll mix in that little leaven into the Jesus we serve. So what do we do? We, we can be on our guard, we can be vigilant against these distortions by beholding Jesus in his word, attending to sound doctrine. This might sound really simple, really trite, but it couldn't be more crucial. Make gathering to hear the preached word in the midst of the people of God with whom you've covenanted together a priority for you and your family. I get it, you've had a really tiring week. But guess what else you've had all week? You've had legalist Jesus hanging around. You've had abundance Jesus calling you. You've had political, social reformer Jesus tossed at you. And you need to hear the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus held up for you and proclaimed. It's not trivial. We need to feed our souls that way. And I'm going to toss this one out, and this might sound odd to some of us. We need to look to historic confessions. Because they're not caught up with how can we be relevant right now. We've been talking about the importance of this with the membership here. About how crucial these rugged statements are so that we don't veer off into an unclear faith or an absolutely distorted faith swept away by the winds of doctrine. And this is no less true in our thinking and worshiping about Jesus. Andrew Fuller said, the person of Christ is the foundation stone on which the church is built. An error, therefore, on this subject affects the whole of our preaching and the whole of our religion. Jesus is the only 
begotten Son. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the head and the Savior of the church. Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the coming judge of the world. Jesus is one with the Father. Equal in beauty and dignity and glory and power. Beware of denying or distorting Jesus. Beware of denying Jesus lest you fall under judgment. Beware of distorting Jesus lest you miss the one who truly satisfies your every need. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And we ask that even as we've looked at your word, that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts. I pray for some right now who up until this moment have rejected you. Perhaps because of hurt, perhaps because of um, just an unwillingness to surrender their lives. Pray that you would give light, open their eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let there be light. And may they trust in Jesus from this day forward. May Jesus be their hope in life and death. Father, I pray for your church those whom you have redeemed at the cost of your son. Pray that you would hold us fast in the midst of a culture that just um, throws so many things at us, has so many distorted messages, and not just wrong messages, but ways of twisting your goodness, ways of um, denying and distorting your salvation. May we be people of your word. And may you use your spirit in the midst of your people uh, that you would encourage us and strengthen us to mature uh, faith. That we would stand firm in our faith. That we would not be deceived. So now guard us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to, as we're beginning to do again, um, celebrate communion each week. And this keeps, in many ways, the gospel central to who we are as a people. Um, as we celebrate the, the Lord's table, what we are doing is proclaiming Christ's finished work on the cross for sinners. We're proclaiming that to, to one another in this room. And, and really, uh, though others can't see us, we're proclaiming that to the world. As we approach the table, we're, we're examining our hearts, and, and, and certainly 
uh, hopefully grieving over our sin, but at the same time, we're also rejoicing. Right? We're rejoicing in God's provision of Christ Jesus for us. We're celebrating. We're celebrating uh, the unity and the fellowship that we have as Christ's people. This isn't merely an introspective moment where uh, it's God and me. This is the people of God. As we partake together, we're saying we are one. We are family. We are brother and sister. God has made that happen. And we're receiving grace as we feast with Christ. We're receiving grace to stand in faith in the days, in the moments, in the weeks ahead. And in some senses, we're tasting an appetizer. We're tasting an appetizer of the great feast that's being prepared for us that we will one day celebrate and enjoy forever with our King in a new heaven and a new earth. So who's this for? Well, it's not for the perfect. It's not for the morally superior. It's not for those of you who have had a blame.